Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you have. So over the course of this year, Roughly 5 million businesses took out what were known as PPP loans. If you're a regular listener to our show, you know back in the spring, we were getting one question after another after another about how to apply for PPP loans, how the loan forgiveness worked, what the rules were, all of that. Well, now the questions we're getting concern the other half of this. And that is the PPP loans, part of the promise of them is that they were either partially or fully forgivable and became grants if you met the requirements of the program and how the money was used and having people remain on your payroll who would have been laid off otherwise. That's why it was called the Payroll Protection Program. The idea was to hold down, tamp down the number of people across the country who would become unemployed due to coronavirus. Well, over the course of the program, somewhere around um, $600 billion was lent out. The average amount that a business got was a little over 100000 But there were businesses that got actually millions of dollars under the program. But most of the loans were smaller. So the loan forgiveness. There are many businesses that took out these loans that under the original PPP legislation, the use of the money and then calculation of what would be forgiven and what amount would remain, if any, as a low interest 1% loan, 1% interest rate loan, was based on the first 60 days the loan was in place. Those rules were changed later, but there are now uh, apparently a couple of million businesses that have been waiting to apply for either partial or complete loan forgiveness, and the Treasury has been twiddling its thumbs. There's been enormous pressure from uh, small business advocacy groups, from members of the House and the Senate, and now the Treasury has officially announced that they are going to start processing the applications for loan forgiveness. I'm sure the election calendar has something to do with it, meaning that I believe there's going to be a window that the forgiveness process will probably work better than it will later on, and certainly better than the non-functioning process that has existed to this point. The uh, crossroads that we've been at with the House and the Senate not being able to come to any agreement on another PPP or something similar or changes in how forgiveness will work 
leaves the process in place. There is an easy form for smaller borrowers and then a long form for bigger borrowers. I don't really care about the bigger borrowers. They've got their armies of um, the people who borrowed millions. They've got their accountants and lawyers and all that. But for small business borrowers, the process seems daunting. The easy form and process is uh, not easy, but it is not horrendous. And so I encourage you to check with the bank, credit union, or lender of some kind, could be a fintech, that you did your initial application through and received your funds and see if they are willing to accept a loan forgiveness application. And for smaller ones, the documentation is generally not horrendous. The expectation is that it will take about two weeks, we'll see, to process an application for loan forgiveness. If you use a professional payroll service for your business, ADP, Paychecks, or any of the smaller payroll services, they are set up to be able to give you the documentation for the payroll forgiveness part of your PPP loan. And so if your lender is ready and you get your paperwork together, I recommend before the election that you go ahead and attempt your application for loan forgiveness because that is something that is more likely because of political pressure to happen more easily than it will once we're out of the election cycle. It's time for your questions for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel take turns and Kim, you're first. All right. This is from Edwin in Georgia. Edwin says, I've heard several times that using my credit card is recommended instead of using a debit card for financial safety. My question is, if I use my credit card as frequently as I use my debit card, wouldn't that end up hurting my credit score by putting my credit usage over 30%? Wonderful question. So if you, historically, you split your purchases and you use a debit card for certain kinds of things and a credit card for another, and your credit limit on your credit card is, um, let's say, $5,000. And because you're doing all your charging there instead of doing any split with things happening with debit, and you're using beyond 30% of that $5,000, i.e. $1,500, then every dollar past that, you start to harm your credit score. So you always want to keep your utilization or use of available credit below 30%. The answer in your case is not that, well, so I need to keep using my debit card. The answer would be to get another credit card so that you have more available credit so that your ratios go down and easily stay below the 30% because the debit cards are, uh, some people really like them as a budgeting tool because they keep you from spending money you don't have. But the problem is the risk to you when fraud happens is so much larger with the debit card than it is with a credit card because the federal law and regulations governing are completely inferior for debit cards versus credit cards. Joel? 
Clark Wayne in Missouri says, I have my credit frozen with all three credit agencies. My spouse doesn't work. Should her credit be frozen too? By the way, thanks for all you and your staff do. Yeah, so whether, uh, thank you, and whether your wife works or not, um, you want to have credit frozen for both of you because the threat of identity theft has nothing to do with whether somebody's working or not. It's all about the credit that you have established and the ability to pretend to be you, and that's why credit freeze is important, just as important for a spouse as it is for you. Kim? David in California says, I had a phone call from a phone number with the same area code as mine, but one that I'd never received a call from before. They called me four times in a row. I finally called them back, and the woman said that she had been called repeatedly by my number. The person would ask her for her name, and when they said who they were, she would eventually hang up. They were both very confused. My wife mentioned that sometimes tax collectors will use this as a way to spoof people's phone numbers. I don't know if this could be it or if we're in any sort of identity theft danger. So um, spoofing of phone numbers with the same area code in order to call somebody is very common now because uh, people have the ability, even supposedly legitimate organizations, to spoof the caller ID. And there's an experience, uh, it's just a fact, that people are more likely to answer a call that comes unknown number from their same area code as any other area code. So if somebody's calling from your own area code, you think, oh, I don't know who that is, but it's probably somebody I know or somebody I want to talk to. Don't be fooled by that. However it's happening or whyever it's happening, when you receive a phone call from your area code or any other and you do not recognize the number, do not answer the call, period. Joel? Clark Linda in New Hampshire says, I want to ask a question about a topic that's often on your show regarding cell phones. I'm one of those people who still uses Verizon. I do understand it's the most expensive. <laughs> you said that like like with guilt or something. <laughs> I'm just reading that into the way she wrote the question. Uh, she says, I understand it's the most expensive service out there. I'm a sales rep who uses my phone for business, though. You never talk about any potential downsides to switching. So what are the differences in levels of service, coverage, and data speed of the cheaper competitors? I travel quite a bit between urban areas and suburban areas. So sometimes even the Verizon service is a two-bar event. So thanks for the information. I really appreciate it. Verizon was able for a long, long time to charge more than the other cell phone competitors because their network was a superior network. Verizon, uh, unfortunately for them, lost their network advantage as the marketplace has moved to the newer 5G technologies. And that's why Verizon has bought, uh, entered into a deal to buy TrackPhone and has the visible discount service, has Total Wireless the discount service, because main Verizon is now very exposed with pricing far above the marketplace. Um, if you've been really happy with Verizon, there's not a reason for you necessarily to switch from Verizon's network. The advantage to you would be to switch from Verizon brand to one of Verizon's discounters. So Visible, which is Verizon's 
biggest effort right now with discounting offers service for just a single line, $40 a month, unlimited everything. And I'm sure that's a lot cheaper than you're paying flagship Verizon. If you go to Visible.com, you'll see how that works. And then Verizon through uh, Visible has the thing where you can get multiple people to join with you, all individually billed, and then everybody's bill is a flat $25 a month, unlimited everything on the Verizon network. As far as whose network is considered to be the best in the country right now, there are surveys that continually disagree with that, but the greatest advances in network coverage and speed in the last two years has been with T-Mobile. Kim? Brian in Georgia says, we booked a trip coming up to Orange Beach, Alabama, and due to the results from Hurricane Sally, the property manager slash booking agent has advised that we cannot come now. They have not advised us about our refund. They say they can't really get into that until they're able to get back into their office, which is at an unknown date. So is it safe to assume that we shouldn't be concerned about getting our money back since they canceled on us versus us backing out on them? This is a tough one because if you paid by uh, check or cash or Venmo or Cash App or whatever, your money potentially is at risk because if they've been financially wiped out, even though legally you're due back your money for their failure to provide the accommodations, if they have no money and they essentially go insolvent, you could still lose your money anyway. If you paid for the booking by credit card, immediately take the documentation you have from them saying that the property is no longer occupiable and dispute the charge with your credit card under the grounds of failure to deliver goods or services. And good luck. Ron is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Ron, I understand you are an author. Well, I am a hope-to-be author or author in progress. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you doing, Clark? I'm doing great, thank you. Hope everything's wonderful in your world. Yes. How can I so, be of service to you as an author, author? Well, I am starting to write my first book. Actually, I'm in the 10th chapter now. I'm unofficially retired in doing this, so I'm living completely off of my investment income, and I don't plan to draw Social Security till I'm 70. So I expect to publish this book in a few months, and I also expect to start receiving some royalty payments after that. And so I am hoping that there's some way that I can contribute my royalty income to my Roth IRA. So my question is, do I have to do something like create an LLC for my authoring in order to do that? Uh, What an interesting question, because if you just searched online, you did a Google search or whatever about being able to use book royalty income as a method of contributing to an IRA, uh, gosh, there's so much disagreement among tax experts on whether or not yeah. royalty income qualifies. But Yes, I saw that. Uh, generally, if you have it set up as a business where you're doing a, um, you know, a statement of profit and loss, I don't even think you have to be an LLC. Uh, but if you did an LLC, obviously 
you would be treating this as a business, the expenses of writing and all that, and then you're able to uh, deduct expenses, have your royalty income, and then you would have money that would be able to be deposited in a traditional IRA or a Roth. In your income situation, living off investments, it would only make sense for you to do a Roth. But if it's your first book and you make really good profits from royalties on the book, you get good revenue from it, it would be the time I'd want you to have the help of either an enrolled agent or a CPA who does tax to advise you on how they want you to structure the income from the proceeds from the book is something um, that would go just beyond, go well beyond just the issue of contributing to an IRA because there may be other expenses in your life that you would be able to offset against royalty income that would be more worthwhile to you than the simple focus on being able to contribute to an IRA. And I wish you the best with the book, Ron, and I hope that you're able to uh, have something that people really, really enjoy reading. I'm so glad you're with us today on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. So think about what I said. Save more, spend less, avoid getting ripped off. That's our goal, is to help you, to empower you with knowledge so you can protect your wallet and grow it. So you expect from me the best in advice, information, guidance, opinions. When you don't get the best, I've not done my job. And when you feel that I've disappointed you, or I've made you angry, or you feel I'm giving wrong advice or information, I need for you please to take time to go to clark.com slash clarkstinks and post where you feel I did not serve you. And then once a week, producers Kim and Joel go through your posts on Clark Stinks and share highlights with you right here on the show. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, Mr. Howard, let's get into this, okay? You're really going to call me Mr. Howard? Why not? It's Clark Stinks. Okay, this first one is from Cindy, and Cindy says, Clark, I love that you love electric vehicles, but there's an issue with owning an electric vehicle that you never mentioned. What happens if you have to evacuate like so many people here in my state of California have had to do at a moment's notice? What if there's no power and your car's not charged? That is a great question, and my daughter, who lives in Southern California and has an electric car, when the fire danger presented itself, uh, changed how she thought about charging the vehicle, and she used to be someone who went down to, like, no range at all when she'd say, oh, maybe I need to get around to charging, and since the fires have become uh, continuing and present danger, She has an emergency bag packed, 
and she has her vehicle charged up full of charge and she can make it uh, one of the routes we were looking at for evacuation was uh, towards western Arizona for her and she had enough range to get to western Arizona it does require more thought in a circumstance like the wildfires that have been so vicious up and down the west coast and it is a very valid point if you have a gas engine vehicle as long as there's gas available you're good to go where with an electric vehicle it does require thinking it through joel clark carl says you keep telling us to stay away from the cable and satellite tv companies but you mentioned the other day that you have nfl sunday ticket with direct tv so what's the deal clark NFL Sunday Tickets now available as a streaming product. So I have streaming, and I pay for the streaming NFL package. And um, I I should tell you on Sundays, nobody in my family wants to be anywhere near me. I'm sent to the basement, into the man cave, and I have... The NFL Sunday ticket, I have three TVs across the wall. I have NFL Sunday ticket on one. I have the um, over-the-air broadcast games, whether there's one or two at a time, they're on one or two of the other TVs. And I manically move from one game to the other because you now not only can stream through Roku, it can be right on your TV. And it's much cheaper getting it that way than it is through having to go through the gauntlet of having the overpriced DirecTV satellite and then paying on top of that for NFL Sunday ticket. Kim? All right, Becky. I, I keep waiting for you, Kim, to ask when you can come sit and watch NFL football with me on a Sunday, and it's never happened. <laughs> no, I mean, it hasn't, and it's not due to COVID either. It's because you hate Football. I mean, hate's a strong word. I just it's have an accurate ze- word. Zero interest. It's okay. It's okay that you hate it. <laughs> you just, you just have no idea what you're missing. You just stop putting words in my mouth. I have zero interest. No hate. No hate. Okay. All right, Becky. This is from Becky. Becky says, Clark, I love your show, but you are living in the past. You keep saying that our economy will bounce back quicker than people expect because the economy was strong and it had nothing wrong with it before COVID. But Clark, that economy is gone. It's history. It was turned off like a switch and it can't be turned back on the same way. Too many small businesses are gone for good, actually technically for bad, and we're losing more and more of the middle class. Money is being printed at increasing rates, which will cause inflation. And yes, increased taxes are coming. It seems like you just don't want to scare people. So you keep saying the recovery is coming. So is that like, is the Calvary coming too? Thank you for that post. So as I've shared over the last six weeks, portions of the economy have recovered and other parts are even more dead in the water than they were before. There are many entrepreneurs, individual business owners, small businesses whose dreams have been crushed and destroyed, their finances ruined by coronavirus. And that is true. And there are huge numbers of 
restaurants and retailers, small independently owned retailers, small chains, big chains that are never going to open again. Everything you said was true and is true. At the same time, new business formation in the United States is at giant numbers right now because the very conditions that have destroyed some people's dreams create the fertile territory for new people's business ideas and dreams. And business is not going to be the same. It's going to be different, but it will recover. The full recovery may take anywhere from another two to four years, but the underlying fundamentals of the economy were truly strong when we entered coronavirus and I believe will be again. But no doubt there have been severe dislocations and extreme hardship for tens of millions of Americans. The debt we've taken on is a severe problem we're going to have to deal with as a country. And yes, the math says no matter how much we might not want it, taxes are very likely to go up for a number of reasons. All of that, I think, is true at the same time. Joel? Clark, David says, I'm surprised to hear you advise a listener on how to buy a foreclosure. Preying on people who are down and out, especially when the pandemic is forcing people into this situation through no fault of their own, is exploiting another human for personal enrichment. Helping you keep more of the money in your wallet isn't the same as taking money from someone else's wallet. Yes, banks have a legal right to offer foreclosures, but if few people compete to buy foreclosures, they'll be worth less and the lower value will discourage such an awful practice. We're all in this together, except those who choose profit by another's misfortune. But for fortune, go you and I. Thank you for your post. And I will tell you that the way it works is that Even if nobody comes along who wants to buy that foreclosure, the banks still do the foreclosures because if the bank's not getting paid for a property, they have a duty to their stockholders to see that loans they have that are not performing are getting into a position where they can perform again or that um, that the losses are cut by ultimately selling that property. Whether you buy the foreclosure or not, the bank is going to proceed with putting somebody out. And sadly, it is how the process works. It is harsh, and it is a very, very tough time we have coming this winter for homeowners that may well face a foreclosure. The good news, if there is any, is with the rise in home values in recent years, most people who are behind on a property do not need to be foreclosed on. They may no longer own the house, but they should be able to sell their property, pay off the mortgage, and maybe even have some cash left over besides. Kim? Tammy says, Clark, you don't really stink, but this might be a learning opportunity for you. A gentleman, I believe his name was Bob, called about paying his bills after his wife passed away. She had always paid the bills. 
Clark missed an opportunity to suggest a daily money manager, DMM, to this gentleman. Clark recommends other professions like a CPA for tax or a financial advisor planner, like someone from Garrett Network, and a DMM would be able to help him track down all the bills, including the ones that might only get paid once a year. You can find a DMM at aadmm.com, and in order to be listed on that website, the DMM has to go through a background check and must ask act as a fiduciary. Uh, Kim, this is something I have never heard of in 33 years on the air, um, on the show. How much does it cost to hire this kind of person? Did you see anything on that? Nothing, but I'm going to look into it too, because obviously I've never heard of it either. And that's, it's super interesting if it's, you know, reasonable and safe. Well, I appreciate your post. And this is an example of how we all learn together and we're all part of Team Clark. Joel? Clark Bruce says, recently you answered a question about locking a child's credit. You advised to mail in the supporting documentation regardless of the fear of ID theft. I might add that the parent could send the info in different pieces of mail so that if something was stolen, it wouldn't all be together and the information wouldn't be as useful to an identity thief. By the way, love the show and have used your advice so many times. That is an interesting idea to reduce or mitigate the amount of problems that would occur on documentation. And uh, that is an extra step of precaution. Um, I, I think that the chances that the material gets stolen while it's in the mail and in turn is used by a criminal to engage in havoc with your kid's life is low enough that I would feel comfortable sending everything in one mailing but if you really were worried, this is a way to reduce the amount of harm that potentially could happen. Kim? Rom says, sir, you've helped me many times and I much appreciate it. And also complaining in general makes me sad. But I need you to clarify the following dilemma to help many of us who are in the housing loan market. You suggested that we make three columns for each lender, interest rate, points, and closing costs. But then what? I don't have the key to solve this equation of which lender would come out on top. Please don't leave us hanging. Show us how to process this data. So who from Clark.com posted that, Kim? What do you mean? Well, because we have our new tool that we have spent months developing that's a math formula tool to take that information and then figure out what makes the most sense is which loan you take out. So you think it was like a plant from Sally or something? It sounds like a plant from (laughs) our fellow Clark.com people. I don't think so. So, yeah, so that is something that I'd been asked before, and we uh, worked over a number of months to help people take the raw information and figure out what loan makes sense and what the payback periods are and things like that. And this new tool is available at Clark.com to help people taking out a loan or doing a refi, specifically because the data can become overwhelming. I appreciate all your posts. Please, when you feel that I have missed the mark, missed the point, or just plain been dumb, go to clark.com slash clarkstinks and let me know. 
John joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, John. How are you? Great, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. John, you've had a tough time this year in the job market. Well, it was a, it's not a COVID-related downsizing, but there was a restructuring, and so I've had, uh, what do they call a shotgun retirement, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear <laughs> and, that. Uh, I have a small uh, pension, and my wife has a great job, so uh, right now I'm sort of doing some volunteering, but I think we'll lead into uh, some part-time work. Um, but the downsize, and I mean, I relied for years on company phone, company computer, and I will need that going into this other uh, role, assuming it turns into a small paying job. Curious about whether it makes sense to, to create an LLC to uh, take advantage of, of write-offs or tax purposes or uh, Roth conversion. And the other thing is this could potentially move into a consulting thing down the road. So too early to answer that question but i want to tell you this that even if you are uh if this does transition first to a part-time thing and maybe more later there's no immediate need for you to set up an llc or its cousin or a sibling an s corporation you can operate essentially as at first as a sole proprietor uh basically you're just doing a statement of profit and loss that would reflect on your income tax and you'd be able to offset uh, legitimate business expenses against self-employed income so there is no necessity for you to go through the process of setting up an llc which especially you don't want to do until it is clear that this is an ongoing source of income. You're creating additional expense for yourself that does not have a real purpose. Do you face liability risk with what you would be doing if you go from volunteering with this organization to being paid part-time to do things for them? I don't I don't believe so, no. So then I, guess you I can would never say, really say that, but <laughs> So the LLC is really much more primarily the first reason you look at one is because of the liability shield offered by one. So you will be absolutely able to take expenses like a computer, cell phone, monthly bills for those things, other things that are related to you engaging in your part-time activity that you're being paid as an independent contractor you are able to offset income from that with the expenses and that does not change whether you're incorporated or not and i wish you the best in in moving forward and i'm glad that in a time of disruption in your life that as a couple it sounds like you're still really solid financially you're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.